several sermons in Mark's Gospel have focused on the last day of the last week of Jesus' life. They detail what we could call Jesus' final steps to the cross. The last day or so of our Lord's life began in Mark 14 with his preparation for the cross. This is Mark 14, 1 through 52, which included Passover and the Lord's Supper. Gethsemane and Jesus' betrayal and arrest by Judas. Then in Jesus' last steps to the cross, we find him being sentenced to the cross in Mark 14, 53, to up to the text that we covered last Sunday. This included a rigged religious examination, Peter's denial, Pilate's condemning him to death, and his being mocked by the soldiers. And this morning, we come to the last hours of Jesus' life in which his final steps to the cross results in his death on the cross, which will take us all the way to the end of Mark's gospel. This death includes four scenes. One, his crucifixion. Two, his actual death. Three, his burial. And four, his rising from the dead on the first day of the week. Each of these four scenes are going to make up the last four sermons in Mark's gospel. My focus this morning is on the first of these final four scenes, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've chosen crucifixion as the theme of this morning's sermon because the word crucify and the word cross appears in our text no less than eight times, which is unique among all the gospels in Mark's emphasis on this word. Second, crucifixion is starkly contrasted in our passage with the accusation, which is the title that Jesus has given, the King of Israel. Nothing could be more opposite to the idea of him being a king than him being lifted up and tortured on a Roman cross as a condemned slave might. So in light of Jesus' title, King, and his torture, the cross, I'm calling this morning's sermon, The King's Cross. And we'll tell this story in three parts. One, I'm going to retell the story itself, and we're going to delve into some details about what actually took place. Then I want to explain a couple of important reasons why I think this story is in the Bible. And I'm going to end by concluding with some challenges for you from this morning's text. Let's begin then by reading about the King's Cross in Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 20, the second part. This is God's eternal word. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, 
save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So far the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for the Bible. Thank you that among all the books, it is the most important book because it tells us how to read other books in light of your glory, in light of our sin and in light of your redemption. So help us now, Lord, as this book has been read. May it be explained by the preacher in a way that honors you. And may we as hearers not leave unchanged. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Retelling the story. Well, this story begins with a problem for the Roman soldiers. And the problem is that Jesus has become so weakened by the scourging that he has received and the other torments that he is unable to carry the crossbeam of his cross for very far. The Roman custom was that condemned slaves and criminals would carry this patibulum or crossbeam, which weighed about 75 to 100 pounds, to the place of their execution. The fact that Jesus couldn't carry the crossbeam and collapse under its weight tells us a couple of important things. One, we already see the power of death at work in our Lord's human life. His human strength is quickly ebbing away. This is made necessary, the soldiers impressing or recruiting, forcibly taking out of the crowd, seemingly someone at random, a man named Simon from Cyrene, which is a region of North Africa. Now this African apparently had two sons, one of whom we learn later in Paul's writings, becomes a Christian. We also learn of his wife, Rufus's mother, who was a godly woman who was a mother herself to Paul. Another thing we see as Jesus is collapsing under the weight of the crossbeam is that Jesus, or God appoints followers in surprising ways. Our text is very mysterious about this Simon. He's as you look at it, it says, he was coming in from the country. He's probably a Jew. He was probably out on an errand in the country. He was certainly an African. Cyrene is in uh, modern-day Libya. He may have lived in Jerusalem. But he was not here to witness Jesus' crucifixion. He certainly wasn't there to participate in it. He was there probably as a Jew to participate in the Passover. But as I said, God appoints followers in surprising ways. This passage, I think, hints a little bit, this, this little bit of our story, as to how God often works in the world in surprising ways. What providences, I wonder, have been at work in your life to bring you here this morning? Perhaps, like Simon, this is the last place you expected to be or want to be. I don't expect Simon's initial reaction was to be overjoyed at the possibility or prospect of carrying this Jewish man's cross. Perhaps you've been pressed into attendance this morning against your will. Spurgeon says, unexpected persons 
are often called to cross-bearing. Notice in our passage as we're looking at this story where they take Jesus. Mark is specific. He says he, he is taken to a place called Golgotha, which is an Aramaic word for skull. And Mark explains the meaning of this word by calling it a place of the skull. It's important in our story that this place of death is not within the city confines of Jerusalem. Jesus is led out of the city. Both Roman and Jewish custom had it that criminals would not be executed within the confines of a city. The death of, of, a, of a condemned man would have been understood by both Roman and Jewish sensitivities to have defiled or polluted the city. Notice what they do when they get there as well. When they get there, he is offered in verse 23 some wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now the text doesn't tell us who offered this to him, and by the generic position they, you might think that it's the soldiers, but there's no way that the soldiers, after doing what they did, would have done anything to help this, this poor man. Scholars think that it was actually Jewish women, Jewish noble women, for whom it was a custom or a tradition to help alleviate the pain of a dying prisoner, especially a Jew, to offer him some sort of a narcotic or a palliative. Wine mixed with myrrh, this myrrhed wine or, or drugged wine would have helped perhaps to soothe or calm some of the pain that he was going through. And our Lord refuses it. He could have lawfully accepted this, which would have lessened his pain, but he didn't. Why do you think that is? The text doesn't tell us, but I suspect the reason is that he had so clearly in his sights the mission for which he came, which is to taste sin for all of his elect people, that to taste anything else but that would have somehow taken away or, or cast a shadow over the mission of our Lord. So the first part of our story then is that Jesus collapses en route to the cross. The second part of the story, beginning at verse 24, having collapsed on his way to the cross, Jesus is actually connected or crucified on the cross itself without further delay. Now in retelling this part of the story, I want you to notice in verses 24 and 25 how succinct, how brief, and how restrained Mark is in explaining and describing this part of our story. There is no elaboration here. There is no gory detail. There is no long, drawn-out explanation. Why does he state it so simply? First, I think there would, have, there would have been a common understanding for Mark's readers, and certainly anyone in the ancient world, from 700 BC to 400 AD, would have known having personally experienced crucifixion, either seen it or someone in their family had gone through it. So crucifixion would have been so, such a normal thing in people's minds, there would have been no reason for Mark to elaborate. Secondly though, the mark of a skilled historian in the ancient world was modesty or restraint. An able biographer would have used restraint when describing a thing of horror. I wish modern historians would follow some similar patterns. So with this in mind, I think you do need to understand a little bit of the background of crucifixion, and I hope to show a, a, a similar restraint as Mark does. But because we have no context for this, 
in our culture and society, I think some details are appropriate. First of all, the history of crucifixion. Crucifixion was a gruesome mode of execution employed for almost a thousand years in the ancient world, as I said, going back as far as 6-700 BC to 3 or 400 AD. The method. Crucifixion could involve hanging a victim on a cross or suspended wooden stake. Often the victim would be dead. Sometimes he would be alive. The normal Roman method was to nail a criminal or slave in the hands, probably the wrists and the feet, probably with heels put together, legs to the side, with a nail driven through the heels. Flogging was often employed to shorten the life of the victim as he hung on the cross. What was its purpose? The Romans employed crucifixion as other ancient empires as a deterrent. By raising a criminal on the cross, Rome was saying in effect, this is the exaltation that you will expect if you challenge royal power. What about the limits of crucifixion? I've mentioned slaves and criminals several times and also last week. As a rule, Roman citizens would never be crucified. It would be hard to explain how abhorrent crucifixion was to the Roman mind. Cicero would, would say that crucifixion is appropriate for slaves and traitors, but it should not be before a Roman's eyes, ears, or minds. The thought that a Roman would be crucified was unthinkable. What about the Jewish opinion of crucifixion? The Jews at the time of Jesus would not have been favor of, would not have been in favor of crucifixions. In the early part of the first century, there was a Jewish revolt, and many hundreds of Jews were crucified by the Romans. So Jews would not have seen crucifixion as something that they were in favor of, first of all. Second of all, in their law, it was, it was, there was provisions not for crucifixion, but for displaying in a dishonorable or a shameful way the dead body of a criminal or a lawbreaker on a tree. And Paul quotes this in Galatians 3 when he says, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. But being hung on a tree after you're dead is very far from being crucified. So with that background, Jesus is crucified on his cross. And notice then in our text that the soldiers play a game over Jesus' clothing. They essentially roll some dice and raffle off the last remaining pieces of property that he has, which is one or two, possibly three, articles of clothing. Why do they do this? Well, one reason is related to biblical prophecy. I want to encourage you later today to reread Psalm 22. There's at least seven verses in Psalm 22 that are echoed or quoted in our passage this morning and in next week's passage. But I want to read you a short excerpt from Psalm 22 related to the clothing. This is from the Net Translation of the Bible. You set me in the dust of death. Yes, wild dogs surround me. A gang of evil men crowd around me. Like a lion, they pin my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies are gloating over me in triumph. They are dividing up my clothes among themselves. They are rolling dice for my garments. I think the other reason why Mark is careful to include the raffling off of Jesus' clothing is to make the indirect point that when our Lord hung on the cross, he was absolutely stark naked. There was not a shred of clothing for him to hide behind. 
He was exposed in all of his human nakedness before the watching world. I think this is intended, and I'll explain more of this later in the sermon, I think this is intended to give us a glimpse of the true nature of sin. Sin, you see, is a kind of spiritual nakedness before God. So in terms of our story, he collapses on his way to the cross, he is crucified on the cross, and finally he is criticized for his cross. Looking at this story in detail or retelling the story, we've seen that the king collapses and he's nailed to the cross, and then there's three groups of people in our text that once again return to the mocking theme from last Sunday. We have the crowds who go by wagging their heads in verse 29 and saying, Aha! Ha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also, verse 31, the chief priest with the scribes are mocking him or criticizing him. And then in verse, at the end of verse 32, we see that even the robbers on his right and on his left are criticizing him. Okay, that's the story, the king's cross. I said, secondly, I wanted you to think about why is a story in the Bible? Now, that may seem like a dumb question. I mean, the cross. Of course the cross is in the Bible, isn't it? Well, not so fast. Do you really understand what the cross is about? Do you know why the story is in the Bible? Why the crucifixion? Why the cross? This obviously could be a whole sermon in itself, but I want to briefly suggest three reasons why the crucifixion is in the Bible. First of all, you can't be good enough for God. The cross is in the Bible to make this statement. You cannot impress God. No amount of effort, no amount of hard work, no amount of repentance can make you good enough for the holy God. The cross is proof that you cannot be good enough for God. It is an ugly, ghastly, grisly display, a gross manifestation of human depravity. It is proof that you cannot be good enough for God. I once met a young man at an ice cream shop and we were chatting and I asked him, I said I was a pastor and what was his background? And he said, that he was Catholic, but he doesn't go to church anymore because he thinks it's, it's enough to be a good person. And I said, will you believe in God? And he said, I do. And I said, if it's enough to, believe, to be a good person, then why the bloody cross? Why the cross? This isn't a problem unique to Catholic Baptists and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists. The whole group of us fall under the spell that if we just try harder and clean up our act, we can be good enough for God. My question to you is, if you can be good enough for God, then why the bloody cross? Why did Jesus die on a bloody cross? Like human sin, your sin, the cross is scandalous, terrible, and excessive. Josephus in the first century described the cross as the most wretched of all ways of dying. It's perfectly suited to communicate the horror, the terror of human sin. Submitting himself to such a grisly, shameful death, Jesus reweaves the warning by Rome 
intended to deter crimes against the state, Jesus reweaves this warning, not as a deterrence to sinning against the Roman Empire, but as a deterrence to any who would presume to be good enough for a holy God. The cross expresses human arrogance, pride. That's why it's raised above the earth. And so by raising him above the earth, God is saying, you cannot raise yourself up to be clean in my sight. God is exposing in the cross the folly of self-reliance in the form of a naked body, impaled in the wrists and the feet, bleeding and ragged, quivering, drained from strength in the heat of the sun, completely impotent before the Creator and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Secondly, not only is the cross in the Bible a proof that you can't be good enough for God, that's the bad news, the good news is the cross proves God's love. The cross shows you that God is willing to identify himself with sinners as a representative of us all in order to bring us to the freedom of the children of God. The cross is proof, if you ever needed proof, that God loves sinners, that God loves you. Because of this, the cross invites all who are honest about your human wretchedness to see in Jesus' death on the cross the death which you deserve, but which he took in your place. It's true, the cross is a statement of the stark reality of the estate of human guilt. You are guilty. You are in a state of guilt. You are guilty before God. But in God's abundant grace, he is able to transfer your state of guilt to someone else, to a representative, righteous man, to Jesus. And what's more, in God's grace, he gives you Jesus' innocence and holiness in its place. By his stripes, Isaiah says, you are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. This is a, a fool's throne where he is raised up between one on his right and one on his left. I think uh, Mark is, is echoing the, the request of James and John in Mark chapter 10, Lord, grant us that we may be seated on your right and on your left in glory. They had no idea what those seats would look like at the time of their request, did they? No, he was numbered with the transgressors in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He was counted wicked as God's enemy, he who knew no sin, that you might be counted blessed, accepted, and righteous in him. Christ's obedience on the cross rewinds and reverses Adam's disobedience in the garden. By Jesus' condemnation on the cross, you have been acquitted of all your sins. By his suffering, you have peace, and by his shame, you receive glory. No wonder, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. The cross is in the Bible, I think, to prove the folly or the emptiness of human goodness and the immensity of the love of God. The third reason I think that the cross is in the Bible is to say this, living for God means living by the cross. The scandal of the cross is the path of your life. For this, I want us to turn in our Bibles to an important verse about the cross in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. Let's turn there together.
Galatians highlights the cross in a way that's unique amongst all the epistles. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, is one of my favorite verses in, in the New Testament. Galatians 2.20 says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's what this means. In ancient Rome, anyone who had betrayed his own people to a foreign enemy had to be subjected to the ultimate dishonor, the cross. We have, by analogy, betrayed an even greater king than Caesar. We have, by our sin and Adam's first transgression, betrayed the very God of the universe, our creator. What we deserve for our guilt is not just a human death and a shameful one on the cross, but the ultimate death, banishment from God in hell forever. But what we have received instead is the opposite. He was crucified for my sins. But this isn't enough. Knowing this isn't enough. You have to believe this, and as I said, the cross must form the path and pattern of your life. Living out of the dependence which the cross requires is an absolute affront and assault to human pride. If the cross cross forever puts the nail in the heart of human goodness, it means that we live like that for our entire lives. We no longer live trying to impress God and one another. To arrogantly claim to live a blessed life apart from God is to deny the cross. To admit that the only blessing comes to me in Christ is to live through the cross. The cross confronts our divided selves, all our imperfections, and says, what will you do with your sin? Where will you take it? To what corner of the earth will you go? What landfill will receive this mess of filth? There is no place. There is no thing you can do. The only place to go is the cross. Will you hide your sin? Will you cover it? Will you dress it in fig leaves? of false righteousness by ignoring what is most heinous in his sight? Or will you choose in the most foolish way to be identified with this heinous torture of the Son of God? This tree of shame, owning it, claiming it, identifying with it, is the most honest confession that a man or woman can ever make. Imagine what a laughingstock the early Christians were to Romans Who could believe in a crucified redeemer? Who could accept the fairy tale that an alleged son of God, unable to help himself at the time of his deepest need, hung on the cross and actually died? Even a moderately educated man or woman in the ancient world would take such a story and consider it utter madness, sheer folly, simply ridiculous. Yet Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. He owned it. He embraced it. He found himself in the story of its horror. And in finding himself there, he found the self that only God could give. He saw the cross. He knew what it meant. And he chose the cross as a way of life. 
He identified with it. He adopted it as the symbol of his life, saying, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, Paul didn't identify as this group or that group. Paul identified in the cross group. Every other group was submitted to the cross. The life I now live in the flesh, Paul said, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. The story of the cross is in the Bible because the entire history of the world finds its crux in the cross. All of mankind's sad history, and you can't read history without feeling sad, culminates and is ultimately resolved in the cross. And it flows out of the cross as well because everyone who finds himself or herself in the cross becomes a new creature in Christ. The life I live is a new life in Christ. I refuse to be identified as any other thing except as a cross man or a cross woman, a Christian, a follower of the cross. Just as Simon bore that patibulum behind the cross in a surprising manner, so we willingly take up our cross and follow in the footsteps of our Lord. So how will you be defined this morning? How will you insist on defining yourself? Will you worship and honor and obey God, or will you, like a lost sheep, insist on wandering in your own way. I want to conclude this morning having considered why this story is in the Bible with a few practical applications. I'd like you to consider first of all, and this is blunt, stop sinning. Stop. Stop what you're doing. Many of you have the name of Christian. You've been baptized. You call yourself a believer. You're known as a follower of the Christ. But in spite of that, you struggle to really and truly live out your Christian life. The first action step that the cross calls you to is to repent of your sins. The thing which cost him so dearly, his life, and as we'll see next week as we look at his death, the unique death that he died. The king's cross compels you to take your sin and put it away, to repent and to stop. There's nothing more ridiculous than to take the cross as your identity and then continue in the very thing for which he died. That is to take the, the horrible, ugly, glorious thing of the cross and make it an even greater shame than it is. Now I'm talking about children rebelling against their parents. I'm talking about dads and moms who refuse to repent of their mistreatment of their children. I'm talking about pastors who have secret sins and elders who look clean but who, as my stepdad reminded me, harbor respectable sins in their way of life. Jealousy, lust, anger, pride, hypocrisy, judgmentalism, or living a self-centered life. Stop sinning. Second, you need to learn to think cruciform. Cruciform. The shape of the cross should be the filter of your mind. After dealing with honestly with God about serious pressing sins, possibly by confessing them to a pastor, to an elder, or to a trusted Christian friend, you need to ask God to help you think cruciform. Cruciform means in the form of the cross. Think like the cross in your relationships. What is shameful in the value systems of the world amongst your friends 
is often pleasing in God's sight. Not always, but often. And what is pleasing in the sight of the world in the circle of some of your friends is often shameful in God's sight. See, the cross was a shameful, repulsive symbol to anyone who had ever witnessed or heard about crucifixion. We have trouble today relating to such a thing, and trust me, the death penalty doesn't even come close. Yet the symbol, this thing, this cross, has come to represent the center of the church, the highest value in the Christian life. We need to think like the cross. We need to study its implications, a philosophy of the cross, relationships that are cruciform, friendships that are cruciform, work, vocation that's cruciform. That doesn't mean everyone's a pastor and everyone's a missionary. No, you can take a cruciform in, in the corporate America. You can take a cruciform as a judge or a politician. Imagine that. You can have a cruciform pattern as an artist or a musician. I wonder what's the most shameful thing you can think of that people in your life who don't know God would hold up as the most horrible thing. I came up with lots of examples that I honestly I can't even mention from the pulpit. Modern shame. What's it like? Can you name it? Can you think of an example? Disgusting. Something that someone would do that you couldn't even be in the room with them. You'd forbid your children from going to their home. Maybe they deserve to die for this thing. That's how the cross was viewed. And it was a foregone conclusion that anyone hanging on a cross was absolutely barred from being a real king, let alone the king of kings. Compare the so-called values or virtues of society to a cruciform mindset. By the cross, we die to the values, patterns, and habits of this fallen age. And in the cross, we live to an age that's breaking in. The cross becomes our pathway to, to live out the new world which God is already making. If you listen carefully, you can hear it. The new world, the, the new heavens and the new earth, the, the world where, where God is Lord and right is right and wrong is wrong, it's, it's pressing in upon us as Christians with this cruciform mind truly and really live out justice and merciful lives. So finally, with this cruciform mindset, I want to challenge you to do something crazy for God. Do something preposterous for your crucified king. What I mean is something completely and totally unpredictably unexpected, at least considered from the standards of this age, but in the view of God, in the view of the age to come, glorious and very ordinary. You see, the cross was repulsive to Romans and Greeks and to the Jews, but to God it was actually a sweet-smelling aroma, if you can believe that. This is a way of describing the spiritually positive impact that the obedience of the Son had offered to the Father. It was crazy, but it was good. It was ridiculous. It was insane. It was pleasing in the Father's sight. 
Your Lord Jesus Christ did something crazy good for the Father, and he delighted in it. It was joyful for him so much did he delight in the shame of the cross that he swept it aside for the, for the reward and the joy that was before him. No one could understand what he was doing. He did it anyway. What do you need to ignore? What voices do you need to turn down? Your parents, your friends, the media? So that you can hear what would be crazy good for God. Crazy good. Maybe there's a crime that you need to come clean about. Retribution, restoration. Maybe you're in an abusive situation and you need to find a way out. Maybe you have no way out. It's possible you feel you have no way out of the suffering you're going through. So you love your enemy somehow. You pray for those who are persecuting you. Maybe you need to break off a relationship. Maybe you need to start a relationship. Give some of your money away to the poor. Give all of your money away to the poor. Find someone who needs help and help them. Why? Because of the cross. That makes no sense. Neither does the cross. Whatever it is, remember what the Apostle Paul said was the basis for his life. The life I live in the flesh, I live for the one who gave himself for me. Whatever you do, whatever crazy good thing God is calling you to do, do it for Christ, through Christ, in Christ, because you've been crucified with Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the cross. Our human minds cannot fully grasp even what we mean when we say this. But we're starting to. We're getting a hint of it, and we've, we've heard a hint of it from the preached word this morning. Oh, how far we have to go in the school of the cross. And yes, that's what we need. We need a church, each whose members, young and old, women and men, black and white, rich and poor, are all enrolled in the school of the cross. And we need to start in kindergarten, the basics. I pray that having heard your word this morning as I prayed in the beginning, that we would not be unchanged, but that the preaching of the cross make a people of the cross for this is what a dying world so desperately needs thank you for listening to the mercy hill sermon podcast if you'd like to learn more about us please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.